That worked. Last week, we started off a brand new series called, Where Are You Headed? I was sharing last week how uh, in small towns, we kind of know a destination now because of our phones. We kind of know where we're headed, and we're doing these turn-by-turn directions, and they can tell us where we get to. But back in a day when you didn't have that, or when the phones aren't working, especially in rural areas, you need to know some landmarks in order to turn. And the way that they describe landmarks in small towns are things like, you got to turn at the house with the red shutters. You need to turn at the big oak tree with the ribbon around it. You need to turn at the, the uh, uh, dollar store and then hang a left. You need to turn uh, three houses in and then you'll get there. They, we, we talk about how to get to where we want to go by landmarks. And the Bible is the same way. The Bible tells us here's our ultimate destination, where we want to get to but then also gives us landmarks on how to know that we are headed in the right direction. Because Jesus wants to be very clear that some people intend to get into eternity, intend to get into the kingdom of heaven, and set out to get there, but don't make it. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's a series that we're looking at in order to take Jesus' words seriously to make sure that our lives are headed in the right direction, not just for a moment in time, but for our lifetime. And we use landmarks, things that help us to evaluate and make sure that the quality of our spiritual life isn't something that we presume, but something that we can know according to God's standards. And last week, we learned an incredibly significant example, one landmark, is our influence with others. We can be educated in all sorts of theology. We can know our Bibles front to back in multiple languages. We can know the ancient languages in which they were uh, written. We can serve in ministries. We can attend faithfully. We can give regularly. But the thing that we ought to be evaluating is who's following behind me? Who am I influencing? And are they becoming more like Christ because I'm becoming more like Christ? Our primary purpose in life as Christians is to make disciples. That's not just for the full-time professionals. That's for the everyday Christian in every facet of their life. So we're looking at how am I making disciples in my workplace? How am I influencing people for Jesus there? How am I influencing my spouse, my kids, my parents, my family members? How am I influencing my neighbors? How am I influencing and making disciples for Jesus Christ? That's our ultimate purpose. And to do that, we're to give our first and our best priority to this. This is our primary function and job. And it's critical that we do this because our second landmark says this. Jesus, in talking to people on the Sermon on the Mount, said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called, what's the word? Great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, doesn't that seem like a box that we can check off? Know and obey your Bible. Know and understand what God is asking you to do and do it. I wish that was the case. I wish it was simply enough to say, I'm going to know and I'm going to apply it to the best of my ability by teaching it to others. I'm going to tell them this is what they must do. The problem is Jesus doesn't stop there. And Jesus starts to meddle a little bit into our comfortable Christian lives because he continues and says, it's not enough to practice knowing, gaining knowledge, and teaching it to others. It must be applied, and you must, we must, I must, we all must apply this with excellence. Because Jesus doesn't stop there. He says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not viewed in the way that we know them today. We kind of know them as the people who were the, the opponents, the villains to Jesus. Um, but not in Jesus' day. This would have been a shocking statement because they were the best of the best. This is like saying, in order for you to be the best baseball player of all time, to even be considered as a baseball player, you have to be better than Babe Ruth. If you want to be even considered a basketball player, you have to be better than Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Stephen Curry. If you want to even be considered, you have to be the best. There's first place or no place. That's what the Pharisees were like. That's what the teachers of the law were. There was a reason why they were the teachers of the law. They were the experts. The Pharisees were the ones who were instructing people, this is what it means to take the Old Testament and apply it to their lives. You need to serve. You need to be better than them. And in what area of life? What did the text say? Righteousness. How is that possible? I mean, here they are. They are committed 24-7 to giving themselves to applying God's law to their lives. Is there any chance for just the, the regular Joes, the regular folks who have bills to pay, mouths to feed, home to keep up, relationships to keep in the community. They're the professionals, and we have to be better than them? We have to be better than the pros? 
That would have been shocking to them. But that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's face it, even though the, um, the Pharisees have a different reputation today than they do then, doesn't that seem like an impossible task for us to be told? Doesn't that seem impossible? I mean, Paul, the uh, church planter, would later write in his sort of, his mag, uh, his, his just his uh, crowning achievement of what it means to believe in Jesus and why you should in the uh, book of Romans. He says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how can Jesus ask us this? All of the Sermon on the Mount is the landmarks of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. So how does this work? How can you and I achieve this kind of righteousness that exceeds the experts, the pros, the pastors, the missionaries? How do we do it? Well, Jesus isn't setting us up to an impossible standard. Jesus is actually going to explain that while it's hard, it's possible. What he's talking about is something called inside-out behavior. It's not just what you do, it's why you do it. And he goes on to explain in some very strong ways that it's not just the avoidance of wrongdoing that makes you righteous. It's actually the avoidance of wanting and feeling like you could do wrong things. Let me explain. It's not wrong. It's not just wrong to do wrong. It's wrong to want wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus tackles things about this. He tackles the question of adultery. And he says adultery is wrong. If anyone commits adultery against their spouse, they are unfaithful. And he talks about divorce and things like that. But he says it's not just adultery. It's lust. And if anyone commits adultery in their mind, then they have sinned and fall short. It's not just murder, he says. It's anger. Anger, wanting to harm someone because of what they did to you. In other words, it's an inside-out approach to behavior. It's a change of our heart, not just a change of our habits. You know, when you uh, renovate a room, one of the things you'll do is say, what's the structure of the room like? And if you start to look at all of the room, you may say, we need to change this, we need to open this up, we need to get rid of this wall, we need to push this back, we need to maybe make the kitchen bigger, or we need to add some, some things in order to make this room function the way we want to do it. And at that point, 
your interior designer or your builder or your um, uh, contractor will say, well, let's check the bones of the room. And they'll check and make sure that the structure is going to be able to support the changes that you want to make. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't just move everything around without looking at the structure to say, will it support it? He's talking about our appetites. What is it that we want? You know, Paul, uh, who wrote that book of Romans, would actually say in another letter, you know, I want to please Jesus, I want to follow Him, I want to obey God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength, but can I just be honest? The things I want to do, I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That's how deceitful we are with the attitudes of our hearts. And Jesus says, no, the landmark you need, especially as you want to make disciples, is understanding how we influence others. He would go on, actually, in this same passage in Matthew 5 and say, you know, don't swear oaths, which seems like a really weird progression of logic, doesn't it? Like, first we're going to talk about murder. We all agree murder's bad, right? Uh, and then uh, adultery uh, is next. We all agree adultery's bad, right? Then there's the third thing, which is uh, don't swear an oath. Um, Jesus, what are you doing here? And all he's saying is, stop trying to take control of situations when you can't. Stop trying to control other people. Stop trying to control destiny. Stop trying to demand things of others that you would not or will not demand of yourself. And then, he goes right to the studs of our lives. He rips away all the sheetrock, all the flooring, and goes right to our heart. And if you've got a Bible with you, let me show you what he says about the attitude of our heart that we need to have if we're going to continue in the direction that we want to go. It's in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. Let me show you. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and, rain, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus goes through this masterpiece of talking about our motives to get right to the heart of the matter, the literal heart of the matter, and says, the kind of love that you and I as followers of Jesus need to have, as people of His kingdom need to have, is a higher love than anyone would ever be willing to give in their right mind. This is irrational. This makes no sense without being a Christ follower. And I would actually posit it is actually impossible to have this kind of love for an enemy if you are not a Christ follower. And when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The, the original language there is hinting at, this is what makes you mature. This is what makes you an adult. This is what makes you actually part of the kingdom of God, is having this kind of perfection, this completeness, this spiritual maturity in your life. Our responsibility is to love like no other group or person could ever love another group or person. And the kind of love that Jesus is talking about was described to us. A love that gives generously. If someone attacks us, we let ourselves be open for an, another attack. I actually thought, you know, this would be kind of fun. Let's have someone come up on, on Father's Day and we'll have someone come up and I'll slap them on one cheek and then they, you know, they have to practice the other side and, you know, let me slap the other cheek. I didn't think I would get a lot of volunteers, but that's what Jesus is saying. And doesn't that seem ridiculous? Doesn't that seem like that's such a risk? Doesn't that open us up to all forms of abuse? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a kind of love that is impossible without being a Christ follower. A love that gives generously and thinks of other people's rights and needs before we think of our own rights and needs. And it's a love that shows no partiality because whether you're a friend or an enemy, I will love you in this way. That is the salt and light of a believer. That is what the difference is that a Christ follower has that preserves the world. Quite frankly, church, we have gotten really, really good at fighting for our rights when Jesus says the loving way is to give them away. And I find that challenging. I think Jesus is starting to meddle here. I think Jesus is starting to get up in my face a little bit. And that's his point. Because he wants to go beyond the surface towards the reasons why I do things and the things that I want. He wants to transform them as well. Here's the amazing thing. Can you do this? Show of hands. Is this something that you can do? Is this something that you cannot do? One person got it right. Because it's both. This is something that you cannot do. If you try to create 
this. If you try to create this love, if you try to uh, determine that inside of you, you are going to create this, you are just going to love no matter what happens to you. You offer that to the world, and I guarantee you that the world will take advantage of that, and you will come recoiling back because it is something that you cannot create in yourself. However, there is something you can do. You know, at home we have... um, number of flashlights around the house if there's ever a power outage and we need to find our way around we've got flashlights and if you're probably like us when the power goes out and you need the flashlight can you remember where the flashlight is no did someone else move it absolutely and you're gonna tell them that next time it needs to be in that place that you said it was supposed to be maybe we have a a flashlight on top of our fridge and you take that out and you turn it on in the dark and it's like, I don't know how many candle power it is, but it's less than one. <laughs> I don't know how anyone sells a, a flashlight like that and expects to, yep, this lit up the room, yep, we're all safe. Like sometimes at night, and especially in winter, we'll take our dog out and we're not sure if we maybe heard some noises, we want to make sure that we can see things. And so we take out this flashlight and it's like, shake, shake. You can't, it just, it's not any good because it doesn't cast any difference. We can't generate that light. We can't generate that love on our own. However, what we can do is decide I'm not going to generate it. I'm not going to create it. I'm going to reflect it. Instead of trying to be a flashlight, be a mirror. I can take that same flashlight, that really weak one, and if I shine it in a mirror and look at the mirror, do you know what happens? I'm blinded. It's still bright. I'm like, oh, that is, what has happened? Because the light's not uh, increased in any way. It's just now I'm looking directly at the source, and it is reflecting back to me. And I can see it. That's what Jesus is saying. And in the context of relationships, what we often do with our enemies is that we say, I'm going to take control of this situation. I'm going to make sure justice has done. Or I'm going to make sure that I love you sacrificially. That's the flashlight approach. But every relationship, every relationship doesn't have to just be you and another party. It can be you and another party and God. You can invite God into that situation and you can say, what does God want out of this relationship? What would God prefer happen in this relationship? What would be honoring to God in this moment? What would show that He is my priority? When we choose those decisions, all of a sudden we begin to reflect His love. We begin to reflect His motives, the things that He does. You know, the same God who causes it to rain, blesses everyone, regardless of whether they are righteous or not. He gives them crops. This is an agrarian society, so they're planting crops. crops. This is how they're going to live. And He blesses them regardless of their morality. That we can do. Because he has shown us how to do that. 
I think one of the things that we need to avoid in our day One of the things that we need to avoid in our day about loving our enemies is pretending that we don't have any. One of the ways that Christians dance around this issue is that they say, well, I don't have any enemies. I'm, I'm good with everyone. But if we were to really take stock of our lives, there are some people that we'd rather not be around. There are some people who get under our skin. That can be hard when they're in your church. It can be hard when they're in your family or they're at your workplace. And you can't avoid them. And Jesus says, be intentional about this and bring your heavenly Father into the relationship. It's no longer just a two-way street, but now... It's a pyramid where three people are interacting. That's different. In premarital counseling, we tell every young couple, it's not just about you and your future spouse. It's about you and your future spouse and the Lord. He must enter into that relationship if you're going to have the best relationship that you possibly can. What if you were to take that same advice and bring that into every relationship. Dads, would that change the way you parent? Yeah. There'd probably be some times when I wasn't a jerk. But I was a godly father. Things I'd like to have back. Maybe the same is for you. There'd be some times that you would change how you relate to others. Because they may not be a sworn enemy, but they may be enemies in the moment. And our natural inclination is to withdraw from them. And I think Jesus is saying, you don't have to. You can lean in by wondering how would God like to enter into this situation? What would God like to accomplish in this relationship? What would a God outcome look like? And the difference is whether we're trying to shine a flashlight or create that light or whether we're trying to be a mirror and reflect that light. That's why it's impossible. And that's why it is possible at the same time. And Jesus simply says, this is, you've got to talk about what your heart wants. It is very easy for us to want what's best for us, justice, right? Especially when the injustice has been done to us. But when we do injustice to others, what is it we ask for? Mercy. We want, we want uh, understanding. We want compassion, which is what God shows to us. The difference between the two is that often justice is focused on ourselves, whereas the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, loving your enemies, 
is focused on reflecting God's love to others. Let's reflect a higher love. Let's love in a way that no other person can. Not just loving the people that we want to love, but loving the people that we don't. And being very intentional about loving those people. And I think Jesus tells us how we can do that. Didn't he say that when someone strikes us, we turn the other cheek? We don't walk away from that relationship. We know that there's other hurts going to happen. Do you think he's talking about physical abuse? I don't. I don't think he's saying put yourself in the firing line. But I do think he's saying make sure that if you need to distance yourself, you are distancing yourself for the right reasons. And it's never permanent. The door stays open. Even if that may come with future hurt. I think he's saying give sacrificially. And when an enemy's in need, you help them. You go above and beyond helping them. Even when you'd love to say, yeah, you deserve this. You say, well, it doesn't matter. You're in a spot. We need to help. And I think those two things are incredibly hard and almost incomprehensible unless one other thing happens. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. And remember, we're reflecting God's love. What is it that we can pray for? Yes, David prayed in the Psalms that, God, you've got to protect me. God, you've got to deal with them justly. But he didn't stop there. He continued. So how are we loving our enemies, the people that we find hard to love? How are we praying for them? How are we serving them sacrificially? And ultimately, does it create something in our lives that cries from our hearts, God, I can't do this. Help me do this. I can't do this. I cannot create this on my own. You need to create this. You need to help me reflect this from you. That's the landmark. And I think that's what ultimately, when the world looks at the church and says, that's not for me, I think this is one of the major reasons why. Is because we're good at loving our own. We're not so sharp these days on loving our enemies, the ones who have attacked us. But I can't help imagine what it would be like if we got this right. If we started to love people across the political spectrum. If we started to love people across some of the discussions that are being had in the world on race, inequality, gender, sexuality. 
I wonder if we were to love those who stood against us just simply because they don't believe what we believe in a way that Jesus said love them, if we were to reflect the love that God has. I think that's the secret sauce of the Christian. Is that it's not about just not doing wrong. It's about not wanting to do wrong at all, not desiring it, but being transformed to reflect perfect love that we have received. Let's have a change of heart towards those who are our enemy who, or who are our enemy in the moment. Let's reflect a higher love. I think one of the best things we can do as we close is, um, as Krista comes on up, is to pray. And I'm going to give you a chance just in silence that as the Holy Spirit leads, if someone pops into your mind that here's someone I need to love who's been hard on me, who's been an enemy to me, or has been an enemy in the moment to me, to ask God to enter into that relationship and for God to have His way in that relationship and for you to be a part of that change. Let's reflect a higher love. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask Your Holy Spirit now to challenge and convict us Every follower of you would never dare to say that we perfectly love our enemies because there are people in our lives who have deeply wounded us. And you know our desire for justice. And yet, your love is not out of sync with that but it has a greater picture of a resolution where we become a reflection of your love as we love our enemies regardless of what they have done to us, as we pray for them. Rather than just us getting what we rightly deserve and what we justly deserve, that you would use the injustice to allow us to reflect a greater love so that that might convict and change lost people's lives. That's the kind of love that you call us to. And we want to have that kind of love as a landmark in our lives. So, Father, in this moment, I just want to take a second or two to ask you and your Holy Spirit to do some real heart work. And if there is anyone that we need to bring to you in prayer because of how they have treated us and we have distanced ourselves, we have walked away from, and there is something that you want us to do by praying, by serving, would you help us to know what that is? And ultimately, Father, we just want to pray that you would enter into that relationship. We no longer want to create a kind of love that loves our enemies. We want to reflect the love that you have already shown in loving your enemies, which we once were a long time ago. So, Lord, 
in this moment to speak to us. Lord Jesus, to the people that have come to our mind, would you enter into that relationship and would you help us to love? Would you help us to love like no one has loved them before? Would you help us to reflect the love that you have shown us, the love that you have? Would you enter into that relationship? May that be a landmark of our lives. as we reflect a higher love. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.